Hello, this is Leslie Groff with Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with attorney and professor John Browning about restorative justice. In this episode, I speak with John Browning, a partner at Spencer Fain and an adjunct professor at the Dedman School of Law at Southern Methodist University. Professor Browning explains his work seeking posthumous bar admission for persons of color. Our discussion leads to exploring the larger context of restorative justice and its value to achieving greater equality in the practice of law. It's a very interesting discussion and one that I'm certain you will enjoy. Here's my discussion with John Browning. Well, thank you so much. I am so happy to get to chat with you again. I know we met at a social media conference, but we're here really to talk about something else that you are passionate about and you are an expert um, about actually, before we started our conversation, we got, you told me about um, how the uh, Bar Journal called you about your um, knowledge of history. And so today we're gonna talk about your work um, seeking posthumous bar admission um, for indigenous or um, African-Americans um, and talk about it in the context of this notion of restorative justice. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your work and what you're doing? Sure. Uh, well, as uh, a lot of lawyers are, I was a history major in college, so I've always had a passion for, for history and it's continued to be an avocation. Um, I serve on the board of trustees of the Texas Supreme Court uh, Historical Society, and I serve as editor-in-chief of their journal, uh, which is a very nice award-winning scholarly journal. And I've written quite a bit um, in the field of African-American legal history. And it was in this context that I uh, learned of kind of a fairly recent phenomenon, and that is um, seeking posthumous bar admission for um, people from underrepresented communities, Asian American, African American, uh, and so forth, uh, who in the 19th century and early 20th century were denied entry to the legal profession because of uh, the color of their skin. And a few years ago, I actually had the opportunity to reach out to um, uh, a law professor in California, uh, um, uh, Jack Chin, uh, who teaches at UC Davis. And he and his law students had been behind a successful effort, uh, one of the first ones, uh, for a, uh, an Asian-American, uh, Chinese-American named uh, Hong Yin Chang. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a person who had all the credentials you could possibly want, uh, Ivy League degrees. He had passed the bar. And yet, because of um, the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, a federal law then in place, he was uh, barred from um, uh, becoming admitted to the California bar. Right. And what, year, per- what year was that? What year was that? Uh, that was, uh, I want to say, in the 1890s. Okay. Um, and um, so Professor Chin and his students, as part of a project, uh, reached out. They reached out to uh, Asian American bar associations, uh, and uh, they launched this effort uh, that um, wound up uh, in getting a an opinion uh, from the California Supreme Court that said, you know what, 
uh, our opinion back in, you know, the 1890s was was wrong and it was based on racism. And we're we're writing that historic wrong with today's opinion and we're posthumously admitting him. Um, now, that wasn't the first time. Uh, the first one was in 2001 mm-hmm. with a Japanese American in Washington state. Um, and that was uh, there wasn't a, a long, profusely apologetic opinion, um, uh, but it was sort of an an honorary uh, type of uh, step. But then, um, as uh, I guess uh, uh, more and more people were paying attention uh, to uh, race relations in examples that came up in the early uh, you know, 2000s onward, uh, from about 2010 onward, we had um, about uh, five more examples. So it's happened six times in U.S. legal history. It's happened with... Uh, uh, three uh, Asian Americans mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, three African Americans, and I'm working right now on what will hopefully be a successful effort to see a Native American uh, from New York who right. was um, unjustly uh, denied admission to the New York bar. Well, I wanted to hear a little bit about kind of the nuts and bolts of that, but before I do that, I guess um, I understand the social implications from a meta level, but I'm wondering. Um, in terms of family, you know, descendant comfort or um, actually, and, and just its impact on society generally, what's the value? I mean, I know there's value, obviously there's deep value, but I'm, I wonder if you could kind of expand on the value of achieving posthumous bar admissions for people who will clearly never practice law, sadly. Sure. Uh, and, and, and in an article uh, that I wrote that uh, is forthcoming in, in one of Berkeley's uh, law journals, uh, I write about this very question. You know, are we? Uh, is it just a symbolic coda to, you know, a racially troubled past, um, or does it have real value? And I think it does. I think it has some value in terms of a meaningful step towards uh, recognizing uh, systemic racism in the past and promoting healing for the future. Uh, I mean, as you know, you know, we're in a profession that uh, has a very troubling lack of diversity. Um, And, you know, the numbers in terms of uh, African-Americans persist uh, uh, to be, you know, lower than they should be, uh, despite efforts, um, you know, across the board. Uh, Asian-Americans are underrepresented, as a uh, former California Supreme Court justice uh, has has, uh, looked at and analyzed. Um, and Native Americans. I mean, I'm I'm a member of the National Native American Bar Association, um, uh, among other affiliations. And uh, Native Americans were historically, um, you know, uh, discouraged from and denied entry to uh, the professions. Mm-hmm. So I think, it's, in, in part, it is um, serving as some um, uh, maybe inspiration. Uh, for members of underrepresented communities that, yes, um, we are trying to make up for the racism of the past, and you shouldn't be discouraged uh, from, you know, seeking to enter uh, these professions. You know, I've, I've written about African-American lawyers early on uh, in, you know, kind of uh, post-Civil War Reconstruction era onward, and how few of them there were. And in part, it was because of the barriers that were put up 
uh, preventing their entry into the legal profession. Some of these were de facto barriers. States like Maryland and California had statutes barring African-Americans from becoming lawyers. Uh, some were de jure. Um, the uh, steps to be uh, uh, completed to become a lawyer were uh, applied in not a very uh, uh, equal way uh, towards African-Americans. Uh, a routine oral examination of a white candidate before a bar committee, this is in the days before there was a bar exam, might be very perfunctory and last mm -hmm. a few minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas with an African-American candidate, one of the rare ones that would actually you know, step forward, um, it could be hours and hours and involve questioning from, you know, many lawyers and ultimately um, denials by the judge presiding. You know, and, and that's classic, classic racism, but classic unfairness. But I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm hearing and what's coming to my mind is that if you get the posthumous bar admission, if we are reminded that there were people who were trained to be lawyers that were in underrepresented classes. So I think that yes. just from a, a numbers perspective, it's it's nice to see that there were people. You know, there were were there were law graduates, and and they did exist. And um, it's unfortunate. Let me ask you about the nuts and bolts of how you go about doing this. How sure. do you go about getting, um, well, let's talk about the Native American in New York State. How do you, how do you go about getting um, awarded posthumous board mission? Well, in this case, um, we had an effort that uh, was begun, you know, by my research into the area and looking at, you know, whether or not, um, you know, from an objective standpoint, uh, that individual met the qualifications. Uh, and indeed, in, in this uh, instance, uh, this gentleman, uh, Ely Parker, uh, a chief of the Tonawanda Seneca who'd been educated in white schools, uh, read the law, trained under a uh, two white lawyers in a law firm in Ellicottville in Western New York. And, and, and you just know that from, from documents? I mean, how oh, do yeah. you know that? As historical research. You, you, okay. You'll see uh, a stray reference uh, to the, you know, uh, the fact that he, he read the law and then you'll find some more references and track down who the lawyers were and, wow. and the name of their firm and then uh, go to uh, an archives uh, that has some of his correspondence uh, from the day and talk about, you know, uh, his his study of the law at those law offices, a correspondence from the lawyers themselves saying, hey, you know, it was great having you on board. We want you to come back, you know, for this time period. And like, um, who, kept, who kept that stuff? Like, I mean, I, 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 of course, I keep nothing. So <laughs> there's no well, historical well, records here. But well, we're we're fortunate in this instance. Uh, this this is by no means a typical one, uh, unfortunately, in that Ely Parker was an extraordinary individual, separate and apart from his his legal training. I mean, uh, and that in itself was amazing because even though he wasn't permitted to be a lawyer, he worked kind of second chair uh, with white lawyers uh, representing the Tonawanda Seneca mm -hmm. in two cases that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and were victorious in which they managed to keep nearly all of their ancestral lands. Um, wow. And so, you know, that, that was pretty extraordinary for Native Americans to win before the U.S. Supreme Court against land developers was, you know, uh, almost unheard of. So, 
uh, aside from his legal training and acumen, uh, he was an extraordinary man. Uh, when he was frustrated in his attempt to become a lawyer, um, he turned to engineering. He studied engineering. He worked on the Erie Canal. Um, he uh, wound up becoming a government engineer, which led him to some projects in Illinois where he crossed paths with a, uh, a young uh, army officer named Ulysses S. Grant. Hmm. They became friends. Um, when the Civil War began, uh, Ely Parker tried to enlist. He was prevented from doing so as a Native American. Yeah. Ulysses S. Grant helped pull some strings and got him mm -hmm. an officer's commission. He wound up serving on Grant's staff and um, was at uh, Appomattox with Grant. In fact, he used his legal training uh, to help draft the Articles of Surrender. And uh, there's a very famous exchange at the surrender where Robert E. Lee uh, notices the dark skin and he kind of does a, a double take. And then he realizes that Parker is Native American. And he says, I'm glad there's at least one real American here. And wow. Parker famously responded, uh, General, we are all Americans. And after the war, he became the first Native American to uh, head up what's now the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, Grant appointed so what him you, to what, that. You, what years are I? I'm... Oh, uh, this was uh, uh, late 1860s. So 1868, okay. 1869, 1870. Um, and uh, in fact, the building that houses the Bureau of Indian Affairs today is named after Ely Parker. So he was uh, he, he was a very accomplished individual on a number of fronts but ironically was prevented from pursuing a legal career. Hmm. And that's all because of racism. Yes. All right. So, so you do your research, which sounds so cool. And um, it's like a puzzle, I guess, putting it together. And then who, to whom do you present this research, the New York state bar or. So, yeah, there, there is a process. Um, and among other things, I'm, uh, I reached out to surviving members of, of Ely Parker's family. So I'm actually, working with a great, great, great grandson um, and who actually portrays Ely Parker in uh, historical reenactments. So hmm. he's, he's very invested in maintaining his distinguished ancestors uh, legacy. And so uh, he thought this was a wonderful way to honor his legacy. Um, we then went about gaining uh, support from uh, tribal organizations, as well as uh, bar associations, minority bar associations, uh, the National Native American uh, Bar Association, various historical societies and museums that were familiar with uh, Parker's historical significance, all have written letters of support. And mechanically, um, the, there's a particular division of the New York Appellate uh, Court that has the final say in attorney admissions, period. Whether you're a young lawyer straight out of law school, out of pace, you know, taking the bar, um, or uh, if you are coming from another state, or in this case, you know, um, uh, making a petition for this posthumous recognition. And I was fortunate in that within the court system, this attracted the attention of um, a, a judge, uh, Justice Mark Montour, who was the first Native American judge in New York. Wow. And, and, uh, and, and this is, he's currently sitting district. He, he is a currently sitting judge. And he's the uh, first native American judge. And it's, and he's wow. Okay. Yes. Uh, a New York Supreme court justice. So he okay. sits at the trial level, but uh, he was um, very familiar with the, you know, 
who this needs to be uh, addressed to. And so I've already been in contact with the uh, chief clerk of the appellate division, um, in part because uh, there in 2019, there was a posthumous bar admission in New York of an African-American man, uh, Syracuse Law School's first black graduate uh, Mm -hmm. who was not allowed to be admitted to the bar. Um, So there was a precedent for this. And the courts, uh, the appellate division so far has been very um, welcoming uh, of it. So do you get, do you get this? And I mean, how often do people appeal to the bar nationally? How often do people appeal to bars across the country for posthumous admission? And, and I mean, for any reason. Yeah, it, it's very rare. Um, the ones that uh, I guess you could put in the restorative justice category. Um, I, when I did one um, in in Texas uh, this past uh, uh, fall, it was only the sixth time in U.S. history that that had uh, been accomplished. Mm-hmm. So they they are fairly rare. Now there have been some posthumous admissions for uh, other miscellaneous reasons. Uh, for example, uh, the Texas Supreme Court posthumously admitted a law graduate um, who had stage four cancer uh, during the bar exam, uh, did not pass the first time, was in the process of studying uh, to pass the bar uh, the second time and uh, and passed away. Mm -hmm. And this was sort of a humanitarian uh, gesture Mm -hmm. uh, that was urged by his law professors, uh, his uh, the, the, the law firm that was going to be employing him after graduation uh, and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we see it also in, on other kind of symbolic ones. Uh, for example, um, uh, 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 gains of the U.S. Supreme Court desegregation uh, case um, uh, in Missouri had applied to the Missouri Law School, but um, uh, never um, uh, I think he, he passed away uh, or disappeared um, after the Supreme Court decision, but before he could actually go and, and complete his, his legal education. Um, uh, a few years back, the Missouri Bar um, uh, and the law school, uh, the University of Missouri Law School, uh, gave him an honorary degree and uh, posthumously admitted him to the bar. So that was a symbolic gesture, you know, someone who was prevented by circumstance uh, from fulfilling that that kind of legal promise. So it really is, ju- it, it is a way of seeking restorative justice for past wrongs. And so what, um, I, what, um, why have you taken this up? Why, why <laughs> is this important to you? And why do you feel that you should be the one doing it? Those are the um, questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I should be the one doing it. I just know that I am right. uh, with 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 some wonderful assistance from from folks, uh, uh, you know, around the country. Um, this was just, uh, you know, my uh, my entire reason for writing about African-American legal history was to draw attention to a chapter in our history that we have sadly overlooked um, and not done justice to. And this is an extension of that. And I've come across a number of instances of, um, uh, you know, people of color who uh, were perfectly qualified to become lawyers, particularly at times in our history when the standards for 
being admitted to the legal profession were, were not that high, right. uh, as long as you were white and male. Right. Um, and so and not Jewish. Yes. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, this uh, it appealed to me to basically right some historic wrongs. So I've identified some other instances around the country um, uh, that uh, I'd like to, you know, uh, pursue or be a part of pursuing. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, there's one example of a, a very promising young uh, person, uh, African-American. In fact, he was Dartmouth's first African-American graduate, and he studied the law in Maryland, um, sat for the exam, and the judge said, well, if you were white, you'd be perfectly qualified. You, wow. You, what year was, you, what year was that? This was, uh, in, it was around 1850. It was right around the time of the Dred Scott decision. As a matter of fact, wow. it was mid to late 1850s. And the judge, uh, actually wrote a certificate for him hmm. saying if he found him duly qualified, um, uh, if he were white, he would be duly qualified to be admitted to practice in Maryland. But upon being assured by this young man, uh, his name was, was Draper, um, that he was going to emigrate to Liberia uh, and hopefully become the first black lawyer there, um, the judge issued him a certificate. Kind of the, well, as long as you're going out of the country, I'll, I'll, I'll find you qualified to be a lawyer. And in fact, uh, young Mr. Draper um, did go to Liberia. Tragically, uh, he died due to illness uh, within months of being there. Uh, so, you know, promises unfulfilled. Uh, but that was an example because Maryland had a statute on the books that said, you know, regardless. And this was a this is a, a someone who was born free had the best education, probably far superior to many white candidates, uh, having graduated from Dartmouth and having studied under a, a former judge in Baltimore. And yet, you know, he wouldn't even be admitted. So, and, and that was going to be, I mean, my next question, because you started by saying we have de facto de jure rule, you know, so when did the rules start to, or the laws start to change, um, against this racist practice or these racist practices? Well, in most states, we start to get more serious um, license requirements uh, around the turn of the century. You know, between 1890s and 1905, 1910, we start to see formal bar associations uh, start to begin. We start to see licensing standards. We start to see an actual bar exam. And prior to that, the vast majority of lawyers, white or black, um, in the U.S. were uh, had little, if any, formal legal education, uh, sometimes didn't even have college education, um, but had read the law uh, under the tutelage of an older lawyer or judge, uh, usually for like an apprenticeship period of two or three years. Uh, in fact, some states like New York formalized it in terms of the number of, of years. And at that point, um, you would uh, apply to the local uh, judge. He would appoint a committee of uh, members of the bar to orally examine you. And as I said, many times this was very perfunctory and uh, it, it was it was a very laissez-faire sort of thing. Um, 
with African-Americans, that practice was, you know, uh, more arduous. In fact, I've written about some of Texas's first African-American lawyers, uh, some of whom had to go before these committees, uh, you know, three times or more, you know, to to finally uh, prevail. Interesting. You know, and, and you know what's striking as we're talking about this? We first met each other, I think, in 2009, talking about social media, which was such a new concept and you teach social media law and yet you are also um deeply committed to history so you really are bookending you know <laughs> you're bookending I mean, me what's happening in this country you know looking it, backward and looking forward i i literally will go from uh talking and reading about uh, or writing about uh teaching about and practicing as part of my practice um things like ai and, and its impact on the law or uh, deep fakes and other new forms of digital evidence or social media and, you know, all of these aspects of our present and future. And yet I'm a big believer that, um, you know, we're, we're not secure in, in pursuing our, our future unless we come to grips with our past. Right. And so this is very much kind of a, uh, you know, a rooted in the past uh, type of thing. And, and, you know, to the extent that I can, that it, it continues to be relevant to the present, as in, you know, some of the research and writings on racial justice issues. Um, you know, I, I hope I have something to say. It, it's so it's so fascinating. You really have become a um, foremost leader in all of this. Um, do you ever use assistance? What if someone listening wants to get involved in all of this? Oh, I'd love to have assistance. I mean, uh, I'm, you know, constantly uh, begging and borrowing, uh, going on the good graces of law librarians and archivists all over, uh, um, you know, some of whom, especially in this pandemic, have been very gracious in understanding that, no, I, I can't make it to Boston or, mm -hmm. you know, Charleston, South Carolina. And could you send me the digitized records uh, that I'm looking for? Um, you know, I, I've, I've had uh, some wonderful experiences, uh, you know, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something I haven't really had a whole lot of help uh, in doing. So, yeah, um, if anyone wants, wants to reach out, I'm, uh, I'm not in a position to say no. <laughs> Terrific. And we'll put your information in the uh, liner notes. This has been so fascinating. Um, you know, when I went to law school, we had to take jurisprudence and we studied the history of the law. I don't, we don't do that anymore. I mean, you know, it's an elective, but this whole idea of restorative justice, I think so many people go to law school to do good and to affect change. And you really are putting it into practice and giving us some concrete examples of how one can do that. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. This has been really informative and most interesting. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Browning. What a treat it was to catch up with this prolific man. I encourage those of you interested in Professor Browning's work to reach out to him and even assist him in his quest. We'll post information on how to contact him on the liner notes of this podcast. That's all for this episode of Law to Fact. As a reminder, you can reach out to us at lawtofact at gmail.com with any requests you may have. Stay healthy and have a nice day.